Let us pray. Gracious God, as we hear your word read and sung this day, speak to us the words we need to hear. Give us the vocabulary of our faith that we might be inspired to love and serve and walk humbly with you. Speak to us now. In Christ's name, amen. The first reading is from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, a very familiar text that ends with a reminder of wings like eagles. This past week, driving across the James, I saw a bald eagle after having read this text the morning of. It was fascinating. It was so wonderful. But listen now. Isaiah's promise of God's presence and power for us. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told from you, told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows upon them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them all by name because he is great in strength mighty in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word of the Lord.
Today's gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. Listen now for God's word to you and for me. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went out throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few years ago, a new Netflix show captured my attention. I'm a big fan of superhero dramas. The show was called, is called Luke Cage. It's about a reluctant black superhero named Luke Cage who claims a new identity after breaking out of prison with newfound powers, powers he received following an unwanted and botched scientific experiment. Having, having broken free of his chains and seeking a new identity, a new life, our hero chooses the first name Luke to honor his father's favorite passage from the Gospel of Luke that reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because I have been anointed to preach good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind. And he chooses the last name Cage as a reminder that no one can cage a man who wants to be free. With his newfound powers that make him literally bulletproof, Luke Cage heads back, heads back to his hometown of Harlem to lead a simple, quiet, honorable life. He just wants to blend in. But that kind of life is not in the cards. It never is for one blessed with such power. Circumstances require Luke to make a decision. Stay in Harlem and seek its welfare or find a new place to live. Jesus' ministry among the people has begun. After calling a few disciples, confounding some religious authorities, In performing a few exorcisms, Jesus heads to the home of two of his disciples to grab some dinner and some much-needed rest. When he arrives at the home, Jesus learns that the mother-in-law of one of the disciples is really sick. So out of compassion, Jesus heals her. Following this little healing and the exorcisms that came before, word of Jesus' power begins to spread quickly in this small town. And by sundown, a crowd of the sick and the possessed, the whole city, have gathered at the doorstep of this little home, looking for Jesus and hoping for a healing. 
Imagine, for example, if word got out that there was an abundant supply of free vaccines available at your house today. You better believe a crowd of people would gather. And when the crowd gathers in today's story, Jesus is present to them. He heals many of those who have come into the wee hours of the night. The next morning, we're told, before the sun rises, Jesus sneaks out of the house to find a quiet place to pray and recharge his batteries. But someone with that kind of power has a hard time finding a place to lay their head. The text says the disciples went hunting for him. Everyone was looking for Jesus, and he is forced to make a decision. Stay in Capernaum and seek the welfare of the people in that town, or do what he was sent to do. Go to the other cities to preach his unique message of good news. Michael Scott Moore is a journalist who traveled to Somalia to write a book on the history of piracy in the Horn of Africa. Michael hadn't been there long doing his research when he was kidnapped by a band of pirates himself who held him captive for two years and eight months. In the book he wrote about his experience entitled The Desert and the Sea, Michael writes down something interesting about the concept of hope. Hope he writes, is like heroin to a hostage, and it can be just as destructive. When asked about this statement in an interview, Michael elaborated. Hope was a cycle, he said, and after a while, it became a destructive cycle. People say, how did you hang on to hope for two years and eight months? And the fact is, I didn't. I learned to live without hope. Having your hopes raised and then dashed every two weeks, which is what the guards tried to do, was devastating. It was no way to live. And so I had to find a different level of existing. And it turns out you can live without hope. Because hope and despair are just two ways of approaching an uncertain future. And if you simply don't think forward toward the future, and don't insist on a rosy outlook, for the next couple of weeks or months or years, then you can live in the moment. And that's what I learned to do. I would have snapped if I had done it any other way. Moore learned that when hope is directed primarily toward the future, it can be harmful, destructive even, when one's hopes get dashed over and over again. His experience of waiting taught him the invaluable lesson of living in the present moment and nowhere else. Hope is a funny thing. We think it comes to us in the form of a vaccine vial or an acceptance letter or a stimulus or dividend check. We think hope is something we are given something we receive, something promised that one day will arrive, the right relationship, the new job, the unexpected windfall, the fresh start, the new beginning. And sometimes these things happen. 
But even when they do, the rush they provide, the sanctity and safety they provide, can leave as quickly as they came. This kind of hope passes us by. The people of Capernaum thought that they had found hope in Jesus. He had the power to heal their diseases and exercise their demons, after all, and yet when Jesus is confronted with a growing crowd of people who are coming to him to have their hopes and dreams fulfilled, people who believe in him and who acknowledge his power, Jesus leaves those people. In response to the cries for physical healing, he leaves that town and those faithful people to do what he was sent on the earth to do. And what he was sent on the earth to do was clearly not to heal everyone or exercise every demon from every possessed person. In his own words, Jesus professes he has come to the earth to preach his message of good news. He came to give us words that speak to a promise, a promise that has the power to change everything. I guess what I'm saying is the hope Jesus gives us isn't necessarily tangible, and it certainly isn't pointed primarily toward the future. His is a hope oriented to the present moment, with both its trials and tribulations, and the presence of the living God. The kingdom of God, the realm of God, the very presence of God Jesus preaches time and time again is at hand. It is near and now. This was the recurring tagline of every sermon. He didn't have three points. He had one. The kingdom of God is here. We don't have to wait for God's arrival. God's presence is a reality here and now. A reality that despite the presence of evil and illness is accessible to each and every person here and now. The kingdom of God, the realm of God, the very presence of God is at hand. This is the good news Jesus came to share. And I believe what keeps us from seeing it and experiencing it and living it is our fixation on sin and our obsession with the future. It's my experience that most of us are either living in the past where the consequences of our sin haunt us, or we're living in the future where the life we want waits for us. And while we do those things, obsess about the past or perseverate about the future, God's here, now, waiting to give us what we need. Which is why, in response to his message, his sermon, Jesus invites the people who hear his words to repent, to literally turn away from sin and believe that God's presence and power is here now. In repentance and belief, he centers them in the present moment. In time, the people would come to learn that Jesus himself was the embodiment of God's presence with us in all things. But for now, Jesus seems to be saying that acknowledging the present reign of God and the forgiveness God offers is enough to experience hope. The late Roberto Galliano expressed a sentiment sentiment, an idea about the life we dream of, the life we hope for. 
He shared a sentiment about it that I think reflects a bit of my understanding about the arrival of God's kingdom. If we fixate only on what is to come, I think this is what happens. She's on the horizon, he writes. I go two steps, she moves two steps away. I walk ten steps, and the horizon runs ten steps ahead. No matter how much I walk, I never reach her. What good is utopia? That's what, he writes. It's good for walking. I believe we are always, in every moment, standing on the cusp of God's reign. With one foot in the world we live in, and one foot, of God's king- one foot in God's kingdom, God's realm. And the line that separates these two worlds is always moving forward, drawing us not into the future, but into the present, the one place where God chooses to dwell. God's coming kingdom is not a future promise, but a present reality that I think demands our full attention. In fact, I'm convinced that learning to live in the present moment, which I'm horrible at, by the way, is one of the primary tasks of discipleship, being here now where God is. This, after all, was the message Jesus was sent on earth to give us. 20 years of pastoral ministry and 47 years of life have taught me that many of us live in a past we can't change, or we dream of a future that is forever out of our reach. Jesus came to earth. His primary purpose, in his own words anyway, was to preach and proclaim. He came to give us a word to ground our lives in. And I think the power of words are unleashed when they come into contact with our present circumstance. Words, in many ways, only speak to us in the present moment. Once they are uttered, they are in the past, and until they are spoken, they stand in a future we cannot see. Words, in many ways, ground us in the present like nothing else can. We literally hang on every word. Author Seth Godin, who I like to listen to and follow, has a daily exercise that he encourages his readers to try to help them fill their day, as he puts it, with good words. It's an exercise I think Jesus would encourage us to try as well. It's pretty simple. Mr. Godin invites us to make two lists. On the first list, we are to write down all the grievances, disrespects, and bad breaks that seek to define our lives. People who don't like us, deals that went wrong, unfair expectations, bad situations, unfortunate outcomes, unfairness. It's all legitimate. It's all real, he argues, so do not hold back on that list. Let it all out. On the other list, he says, we are to write down all the privileges and advantages and opportunities we've been given, the places where we get the benefit of the doubt, our leverage and our momentum, the things we see that others don't see, what's working and what has worked, the resources we can tap into, the people we know, the people who trust us. He then invites his readers to take one list and put it in a drawer and take the other and tape it on the bathroom window, bathroom mirror, excuse me. He makes the case that you should read the list in the drawer 
once a month or once a year, just enough to remind you that it's there and that it's safe and sound. Read the other list on the bathroom mirror, he says, each and every day. The list you choose to read every day, he says, will determine what you notice, how you interpret what you see, and the story you tell about yourself, about what's happening and what will happen. You get to pick which list goes in the mirror and which list goes in the drawer. And picking the list that you read every day, he believes, might be the most important thing you're ever going to do. Jesus has come to give us words to put at the very top of the list we read each and every day. And they are words that speak of a promise of a God who is at hand, of a God whose time is now, of a God who is here today giving us what we need. For this is what Jesus came to do, to give us hope in the present moment, hope grounded in what is real and what is true, the presence of a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, the promise of a God who is near. Hallelujah and amen.